MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, June 22nd, and this is episode 75, our diamond anniversary. I'm your co-host, Allison <laughs> Gill, and with me, as always, real-life lawyer and good friend, Andrew Torres. Oh, and Allison, we should say, is reporting live from Washington, D.C., attending the January 6th hearings. I am so jealous. Uh, it's um, It's really, truly... Unbelievable. I've got to meet uh, meet with and have dinner with and, and sit with so many incredible people. And I, you know, I got to tell you, Andrew, it's very different when you're in the room. There's a lot of stuff that happens mm-hmm. that you can't see on television. Um, for example, when, you know, we think it's a we think it's a meme that goes up on the screen that says that John Eastman emailed Rudy Giuliani asking to be put on a pardons <laughs> list. <laughs> We all, there was an audible gasp in the room. Oh yeah, we looked around because uh, the press tables are behind us, and I'm I'm looking at them mouthing the words. Is this is new, right? This is yeah. is this new? Because I don't want to tweet out breaking if right. this is already out there. And they just sort of sort of went by it pretty quickly, you know. And uh, we were all just sitting there like, what the fuck? That's a phone call favor. Uh, oh yeah oh yeah sir no, it, it, you don't I, put in an email <laughs> to rudy giuliani on a public university server that you want to be added to a pardons list so that and <laughs> and when we learned about somebody who knew a proud boy as, as an informant saying the proud boys would have killed pence if they had the chance yeah. given the chance audible gasps again in the room I, I i love that i think that's so valuable i was actually i i watched as much of that Thursday hearing as I could recorded the rest and we had to record opening arguments in the interregnum. And so taking a break uh, between the two episodes was when I found out the, oh, hey, um, if there's still that pardons list, I think I should be on it from John Eastman. And it just confirmed for me from the very beginning that that John Eastman is uh, the 
Kansas City mob boss from Casino, you know, the yes. one who wrote all of his expenses in down in the diary, in the notebooks. Yeah. And like, it all, it all comes crashing down because this idiot is too stupid not to write every goddamn thing down. And, you know, I discovering back in March that he wrote a, hey, since we've done a little light crying already, how about a little more to Greg Jacob? Uh, makes me, you know, if there is any smoking gun document right the other side is you know donald trump is 75 years old and has spent his entire adult life as a mob boss and is smart enough to do the like hey man i just want to ask you a favor and you know he doesn't use email and he doesn't put stuff down around him and all that's true but if there's a document out there that's like i talked to trump and you know while he knows this is bullshit he's ready you know ready to give me the go-ahead Boy, John Eastman is dumb enough to have written that one down in print. So, and we might have I'm something hoping. close to that, uh, which we're going to talk about. Yep. <laughs> in in a little bit, um, that, that that might be something pushing right up to that edge. Um, <laughs> we will find out. But yeah, not the smartest crayon in the sea. Um, <laughs> and we're lucky for that because our next yeah. our next fascist coup leaders may may be smart. Um, yeah. So no, that's why that's that's the other important uh, aspect of of being there and of the January sixth committee work, right? Which is um, the 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 next effort for this will will not be as incompetent as this one was. So yeah, all all failed coups are, are dress rehearsals. So yeah, all right. Well, thank you for being there. Before continuing, we want to thank our new patrons: Christopher Chastine, Nicole Mars, Switch Ten Twenty Four, and. Remember, if it doesn't say micro machines, it's not the real thing. <laughs> if, yes. if Johnny Machida listens to our show, I will be giddy for the rest of the day. Johnny, if that's you, please let us know. So. Oh, my God. If it doesn't say micro machines, it's not the real thing. I remember that. I remember that. And remember that you, too, can get a shout out by heading over to patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod. We would love to hear more 80s commercials. You can pledge mm-hmm. as little as a buck an episode. You'll get the ad-free version of the show. You'll also get the bonuses, the Zoom calls we do. We'll be doing that again very soon, by the way. We'll put that date out shortly. But again, that's patreon.com slash aisle, A-I-S-L-E, 4-5-P-O-D. Yep. So let's begin. I, this is going to obviously be a January 6th heavy episode. I want to talk about a, a bit of tension between the January 6th committee and the Department of Justice. Now, I... I think I think you're going to agree that that this has been overblown in the press, uh, but uh, it, it it centers right now on the highest profile set of cases that we know about, right, which are the, the prosecution of Joseph Biggs and the Proud Boys, right, along with the Oath Keepers. These are the guys who were charged with 18 U.S.C. Section 2384, seditious conspiracy. I think that's a leading indicator as to where the DOJ ultimately wants to charge Donald Trump. But, you know, I'm a noted optimist. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm still a little bit on the uh, 1512 C2 train, but the, I see that the quote unquote tension is that uh, prosecutors want to just put the And, you know, I got to tell you, Tim Heafy works for the committee. There's like 44 for DOJ guys. I don't see this necessarily as as tension, but we'll get into it. Yeah, it's that prosecutors want to just put their heads down, do their job, which in this case is to convince Judge Timothy Kelly of the U.S. District Court of the District of Columbia that Tario, Biggs and the Proud Boys are guilty of the nine crimes with which they've been charged. And at the same time, the January 6th committee is trying to educate the Department of Justice and the public in general 
that the Proud Boys were essentially the muscle being used by Trump and his co-conspirators to carry out the disruption of the electoral count. If you've seen that amazing New York Times video reporting where they put all that together, I would recommend checking that out. So it wasn't wasn't Mm -hmm. surprising that Biggs and his fellow Proud Boys were front and center during the committee's opening statements two weeks ago. Yeah, I, that, that that's right. And that and that led Biggs to make and to supplement two separate motions uh, last Thursday, the 16th. Right. The first one was to postpone the trial for four months from August 8th to December 12th. And the second, this was supplementing an earlier request uh, by Tario to change venue, to move the trial from D.C. to Miami. Right. And and there are really two new arguments that Biggs is making here. One is that the ongoing January 6th hearings are prejudicing the jury pool. And so uh, we should, quote, wait until the dust has settled. That's their words, not mine. Right. <laughs> or uh, and or, I guess, move the trial to Miami. Right. And then and then the second argument is that in order to prepare their defense, they, that is Biggs's lawyers, which now include uh, the laughably incompetent InfoWars host Norm Pattis, uh, but uh, that Biggs and his lawyers need access to the January 6th committee transcripts from interviews and depositions that they have done with, with various witnesses that could be potentially exculpatory, and those aren't scheduled to be released until September, which would be well after the trial was underway. Yeah, okay, but you can't be bradied for stuff you don't have, but whatever. Uh, That's true. That's true. (laughs) But, and I don't want to seem pro-proud boy here, because I'm not. I am (laughs) pro-DOJ winning their case. I I think it's highly unlikely anyone would think that of you. I am pro-DOJ winning their case, because they seem like pretty decent arguments. And so on the very same day, Department of Justice consented to, quote, wait until the dust has settled, unquote, and move the trial to December. Now, of course, they're all in pretrial detention, so they hate this. Um, In that consent, the DOJ also represented that it does not have access to the transcripts, no ability to compel Congress to provide copies, and has repeatedly requested DOJ give up those or uh, the committee give up those transcripts. And this seems like pretty strategic concession to me, right? Because we're going to talk about here in a minute what Judge Kelly has sort of decided on some of these points. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. And the key point that you raise there is something I think the government really strategically headed off, which is all of these folks are presently being detained without bail. Right. And so moving to extend the trial date is a good thing if you're a criminal defendant who's been released. It's typically a bad thing if you're already in prison. Right. The government's like, yeah, sure. Fine. Whatever. Um you want to stick around in prison a little longer and uh, concede that we have not violated your right to a speedy trial? Great. Let's ha- let's have at it. OK, um, so the government has not yet filed its opposition to that newly amended motion to transfer venue. But I can assure you there is no way they want to litigate this case in Miami, obviously. Right. Um, and, and I also thought that the consent was really smartly written, as you allude to, um, to basically concede the good argument that Biggs was making, right? That, that like, yeah, it would make it easier for both sides if they had access to these DOJ transcripts. But to draw the line in the sand as they do and say, look, uh, this should not support a motion to change venue. And the, the real issue, I think, here, which is uh, what the government fronts, it, it should not 
allow or serve as the basis to have any of the Proud Boy defendants try and sever out of this trial on the basis of, oh, hey, yeah, you mentioned, you know, Biggs by name, but you didn't mention me, you know, Nordine or or some of the other guys. And so I should get my own trial that's uncontaminated by that. And the government explicitly said, uh, yeah, no, we, we, <laughs> we would not consent to that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's Tario, Nordine, Real, uh, whom the government wants to try jointly with Biggs and Spazzo, Dominic <laughs> Pozzola. God. And so the very next day, Friday, Judge Kelly entered a minute order that requires any responses, including related requests to sever, to be filed by the end of the day Monday. That's today uh, as we record this uh, and for any opposition to be filed tomorrow. And as of this record, no motions to sever uh, have been filed. Yeah, and we'll we'll obviously monitor and and supplement if we can. But but look, if that's the case, this is an unambiguous win by the government, right? You postpone the trial for criminal defendants who are already in custody. They're not free and out there and, you know, giving in interviews on InfoWars. Uh, and uh, you avoid the, the potential uh, of... Tainting you know, a jury. An, yeah, appeal. Yep, e exactly right. And so there's another happy outcome, which is that I'm going to get documents early. <laughs> so that's that's always happy. Um, the, the, the existing deadline was that uh, the, the committee was going to release its transcripts in September. But uh, as part of the consent, this was document number 404 in the case, right? The DOJ filed Exhibit 1 to that, so 404-1, a letter from the DOJ to Tim Heafy, which, who is the chief investigative counsel to the January 6th committee, that renewed its earlier request that the January 6th committee provide it with transcripts from the interviews and depositions that it has conducted that are likely relevant to ongoing investigations and prosecutions. This was signed, you know, top down by Matthew Graves, who's the U.S. attorney who is overall in charge of January 6th prosecutions, also by AUSA's Ken Polite and Matt Olson. Yeah, and the one-page letter is really, really interesting, both in terms mm. of what it says <laughs> explicitly and also in terms of what it implies. So I'm going to read briefly from it. It's going to come in handy later in something else I'm going to talk about, mm -hmm. too. <laughs> Quote, it is now readily apparent that the interviews the select committee conducted are not just potentially relevant to our overall criminal investigations, but are likely relevant to specific prosecutions that have already commenced. That means bigs, proud boys. Yep. Given this overlap... It's critical that the select committee provide us with copies of the transcripts of all its witness interviews. As you are aware, grand jury investigations are not public and the select committee does not and will not know the identity of all the witnesses who have information relevant to the department's ongoing criminal investigation. That tells us that grand juries are still impaneled and potentially ready to hand down additional indictments. And I don't think you'd put it that way if you weren't at least trying to imply that you might indict Trump. And, and let's remember, Andrew, too, Somebody who made a little blip of an appearance uh, in that first hearing was a guy named Jeremy Bertino, mm -hmm. who was raided by the FBI the same day Tario was arrested. And he has not been charged. So he presumably seems to be cooperating with the committee and probably also the Department of Justice. But we don't know. There's just so much we don't know. And that's why the, the and Adam Schiff knows this too, Andrew, <laughs> when he's up there like, hey, just tell us specifically what transcripts you want. He knows that the DOJ can't do that without revealing who's under investigation. Yeah, I, I think all of that is correct. Right. And, and so, yes, it is fun for, you know, the New York Times to sort of spin this up as tension between 
the committee and the DOJ. I, I, I actually want to give They just seem some like voice. normal filings to me. I, this is just, yeah, this is just, they have slightly different ends, right? And so those ends can be legitimate. They, they can, they can each be legitimate and, you know, you just sort of differ on what weight to give them. So, so let me give a little bit of voice to the January 6th committee's arguments, right? Like, cause you and I tend to come down on the prosecution side because at the end of the day, we want to see Trump in handcuffs and an orange jumpsuit, right? But the January 6th committee's arguments are not dumb. They're not bad, right? They are at least, I, I had a two good arguments that I can think of as, as to why you would want to slow walk turning over your transcripts to the DOJ, right? The first and by far the most important is that, as Liz Cheney has reminded us at every turn, these investigations are ongoing, right? In between the public hearings, they are still interviewing witnesses. They are still talking to folks. And when shit is going badly, and by the way, if you were an insurrectionist or co-conspirator, um, shit's going badly, right? Like <laughs> these three hearings have been bombshells, as, as you pointed out, right? That's when other rats dive off of the sinking ship, right? So, you know, I, it it is not implausible to me to say, hey, um, we are hoping that these public hearings convince some of the folks in the Trump White House who didn't talk to us before that maybe the time is now <laughs> to talk to us and, uh, you know, possibly ward off the next insurrection. Like, I don't see how you can't if 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 you were ideologically similar to Greg Jacob, right? Pence's chief mm -hmm. counsel, uh, who was by far the star witness on hearing number three, yeah. right? To, 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 and, and again, Greg Jacob, not a guy. If you, if you and I were hanging out, having beers with Greg Jacob, we would disagree with every other word that came out of his <laughs> mouth, right? Like he's, he's the chief counsel to Mike Pence, Right. Like a evil Christian dominionist goblin. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. And I also like, really didn't like his idea of the inartfully uh, written 12th Amendment. But, you know, whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the like in wording off, right, in correctly calling John Eastman bullshit. Right. You, that that selectively quotes out several paragraphs of his email saying, uh, you know, I totally agree with you. It's going to be a disaster when Democrats take over and they have no regard for the country and they're, you know, they hate Jesus. And they are like, so this is not uh, this is not a, a liberal guy. And if you were at the Trump White House and you had respect for Greg Jacob and you watched what he did on Wednesday, you might think, yeah, I'm going to talk to Liz Cheney now. And you might be a little bit more hesitant if you think that Liz Cheney is just a back channel to prosecutors. Right. So yep. that's the first argument. Yep. I think it's pretty good. It is. Know? Yeah. And, and and sort of like nudge, nudge, Pat Cipollone. Right. Like, yeah. It, uh, I, I personally think the whole reason to use that Jared clip twice, by the way, mm -hmm. was to make Pat Cipollone mad. <laughs> I, 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 I can't say that's wrong, right? Like it, 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 we don't know what's going on in their heads. I think they're trying to shake loose more folks from the tree. So mm -hmm. I get saying, hey, look, like talk to we us. We don't want to look like we're cooperating with the Department of Justice here. Yep, exactly right. And and then that's the, the second aspect is just... um. As a lawyer, I can tell you finalizing transcripts is not as simple as like just emailing out the contents of your, you know, saved directory, right? Like it, it, when someone gives a deposition, they have the legal right. And so when someone gives a voluntary interview, you extend them that same courtesy. 
for their lawyer to go over that transcript and make sure that the transcript accurately reflects the testimony of the witness. And you typically have 30 days to do that. Right. And and, you know, and I've told stories before about how lawyers have abused that process. I I once had opposing counsel try to insert a knot that was clearly not said during. Yeah. But mm-hmm. but but you get that like this takes time. And right now uh, uh, we know we're going to talk about this in the B segment like the, the the January 6th committee has a billion balls in the air and saying like, you know, come on, man. Like, I know I want to get Torres the transcripts, too, but like, let us let us do our job in June 1st. And then in in July, you know, we'll we'll finalize some transcripts for you. Sure. And I agree. But don't criticize this. The Department of Justice is taking time if you're going to slow walk getting them what they need. And and I want to be clear here. The Department of Justice doesn't need desperately need the Department of or the, the committee's transcripts because they don't want to do their own interviews and they don't want to work and they're just sitting around smoking fucking bowls. They need these. The, I'm going to go over why they need these transcripts. But, <laughs> but we know it's, and I'm going to go over it in detail, but it's it's not about, well, we just don't feel like interviewing these people. We want to just ride the committee's coattails and do, ha, let them do all the work. That's not what's what this is about. And I think it's important. Yeah, absolutely to, not. Im- absolutely Important not. to point that. I don't think anybody who listens to our show thinks that that's what's going on. And also one other thing I wanted to point out, Andrew, with regards to the Proud Boys asking, seeing if they're going to file any motions to sever, which they haven't yet, trying to change venue uh, to Mm -hmm. Miami. There was also um, Ethan Nordeen filed a motion to be released from pretrial detention based on speedy trial considerations. Right. And Judge Kelly said, no, no. (laughs) And he basically, you know, he pointed out because Nordine had argued the government violated his speedy trial rights by holding him more than 90 days. Um, but Kelly says, thanks to numerous motions that you filed and COVID-related exceptions, zero time has elapsed under the speedy trial clock. <laughs> yep, yep. So they aren't going to get out. If they're asking for to move their shit to December, they aren't going to get out of prison waiting for it. Yeah, you don't you don't get to say uh, I'd like to delay the trial by four months. And also like, oh, look, now we're outside the three months, the speedy trial. No, right. You you equitably toll the running of the clock when you've consented uh, to stay in prison. These dumb lawyers might be like, well, then never mind. We don't want to. And it's like, no, bro, too late. We already agreed. We're doing it in December. (laughs) Absolutely right. Um, That filing was inexplicable. You and I went back and forth. Over the weekend, because uh, that was the one where Nordine, this is uh, filing number 405-1, attached the 1776 plan to his own filing, believing that that was exculpatory evidence. And boy, like we could do an entire separate segment on that. But yeah, no, the the detailed plan for how to uh, occupy the Capitol and, uh, you know, because it didn't include the Capitol itself. It only included (laughs) the targeted buildings and the surrounding buildings. Right. The Uh, cannon, Longhorn. Yeah. Oh, which by Rayburn, which happened to just be where Loudermilk was giving tours to people on January 5th who were taking pictures of staircases and tunnels to the Capitol complex. But whatevs, you know, I'm sure it was just totally like like they said, you know, tourist visit. These are just tourists, Andrew. Yeah. So uh, it it, these. I'm glad I'm glad you brought that to our attention. The the level of disconnect in reality uh, is uh, is is kind of terrifying. And again, you know, it highlights 
the why I have been opposed to the denigration of anybody appointed by Donald Trump as a Trump judge. Right. It, it, instead, I've said, look, like, yeah, the Justins and Corey, yeah, Justin Walker, Naomi Rao, you know, they, these folks who are ideologues with no experience. Yeah, sure. Like. Uh, uh, we shouldn't call them judges. They are hacks in robes. Trevor um, McFadden even found a bench trial defendant yep. guilty of obstructing an official proceeding last week. Yep. It, it really does. It goes to show you that that uh, there are folks who were conservative, who were ideologically aligned with the last president, who nevertheless are horrified by what's going on. And that's, that. again, all of that. I know I'm an optimist. I know, you know, I'm... Uh, Tweet at me the Lucy with the football memes, but um, it, it, it gives me confidence. And I'm Lucy. Confidence. I feel like I'm Lucy. You know? <laughs> I will always run up no, and No, I'm the with you. It, it gives yeah. me confidence, too. And, you know, Matthew Graves going out on a limb to charge seditious conspiracy. Yeah. I did, what, it, 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 it carries the same, effectively, right, the same penalty as 1512. And, and why do you do that? That's why I called it a leading indicator. It seems to me you say, yeah, we... We we better you know knock some rust off the whole spikes. Yeah, to say uh, I have before enough evidence. a pretty serious charge. Yeah. I have enough evidence here to say that this wasn't just obstructing what Congress was trying to do that day. This was seditious activity. They were trying to yeah. overthrow the government by force, or you know, the the electoral count or an official proceeding by force to to yeah. to stop the what the law from being. You know, yeah, the 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 it, in, to interfere with the lawful operation of the Electoral Count Act. There you and go, and that that plainly and that you need those three elements, right? You need an agreement, uh, you need force, and you need a lawful proceeding that you were trying to interrupt, and in this case, succeeded at interrupting. So yeah, and that's why but, a lot of people are trying to file motions saying that the Electoral Count is not an official proceeding, and they're like, that's what that where eleven out of twelve judges agree. <laughs> I, it's. It's very hard. If the ceremonial opening of electors by the vice president before a joint session of Congress is not an official proceeding, it is almost impossible for me to imagine what is. Yep. So. Yeah. One of those Rudy Giuliani holiday in horseshoe <laughs> fraudulent elector things, because that's what they're arguing. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about, you know, why the DOJ needs these transcripts. Uh, a little bit more and and what happened to the doj hearing that was supposed to take place on wednesday absolutely wednesday is when that letter came from department of justice to tim heafy the the second letter the 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 more aggressive uh you know yeah that's that is right (laughs) and it it is worth pointing out because we were made aware of it on thursday the 16th uh but that's because that's when it was attached to the to the concession right to to yes. the consent uh it was issued on june 15th absolutely correct yes and i flew in on a red eye to make that hearing because yeah. i wanted to be in the room with the doj hearing uh, i was at the hearing thursday where Ludwig and Greg mm-hmm. Jacob testified about the pressure campaign against pence i'll be there for tuesday's hearing which is tomorrow for us yesterday for <laughs> listeners <laughs> With Raffensperger and his deputy and the Arizona Republican Speaker of the House. That hearing will be led by Adam Schiff, who told CNN, uh, Dana Bash, that the committee has evidence tying Donald directly to the fraudulent elector scheme. I am so jealous. <laughs> so I, it, I, I want to focus in on a, a little talked about draft letter that was written 
to Trump again by our our friend, uh, you know, the the bookkeeper, Frank from Kansas City, John Eastman. Right. So Eastman is redlining a proposal to proceed under the 12th Amendment. The original says, uh, and this is, we don't know the the uh, author. I assume it's Ken Cheesebro, but... Uh, could be, could be, yeah. Could be there are others that were involved. We know uh, Cleta Mitchell sought out John Eastman as the 12th Amendment expert uh, two days after the election. It, you know, so tough to say. The original says, one, the president of the Senate decides authoritatively what certificates from the state's to open and what electoral votes are counted under the 12th Amendment and the Electoral Count Act, right? That's 3 U.S.C. 15, to uh, uh, implements that, right? And so Eastman says, I don't agree with this. The 12th Amendment only says that the president of the Senate opens the ballots in the joint session and then in the passive voice that the votes shall then be counted. And 3 U.S.C. 12, right? just earlier in the book, says merely that he is the presiding officer. And then it spells out the specific procedures, presumptions, and default rules for which states will be counted. And again, this is all Eastman's words. Nowhere, this is Eastman, nowhere does it suggest that the president of the Senate gets to make the determination on his own. Section 15 doesn't either, end of quote. And the punchline is that comment by Eastman is dated October 11th, 2020, weeks before the election, months before he drafted that cockamamie bullshit plan uh, that, and, and again, I'm quoting Greg Jacob here, that's not just me saying it, uh, that says, well, obviously Pence has the absolute right to uh, determine what electors are valid or right. Um, it's a clear indication. It is the strongest evidence we have that Eastman did not think that what he would eventually propose and lobby Pence to do was in any way legal. It's a crucial document. It is. And it was just up on the screen for a moment in Thursday's hearing. And then whoosh, it yeah. was gone. And I got a picture of it. I was like, what, what the fuck was that? <laughs> well, go, go back, go back, go back. <laughs> and, and I think that draft letter might come up again. I'm not sure if it's what Schiff is referring to uh, when he says that he has evidence, the former president's direct involvement. That was a letter to POTUS, but there was no apparently response from POTUS. And since we record on Monday and we air on Wednesday, I can only speculate that whatever evidence that is will be revealed in Tuesday's hearing. And as you're listening to this, you'll probably know what it is by now. But Andrew, I was also scheduled to be in the hearing room on Wednesday for the mm. hearing that was going to include <laughs> former Department of Justice officials Donahue and Jeffrey Rosen, acting former acting attorney general and as deputy. And I was looking forward to that hearing because I think we would have learned Jeffrey Clark's role, perhaps why Scott Perry wanted a pardon and was so keen on replacing acting A.G. Rosen with Jeffrey Clark. And we might have learned more about Clark's involvement with the fraudulent slate of elector scheme based on the letters he drafted to the seven target states saying their elections were under scrutiny at Department of Justice, which was a lie. We've only seen the Georgia letter, but uh, we've heard that there are other letters for each of those states. Uh, but well, remember, Trump said, you know, well, just announce, just announce there's an investigation and me and my congressional Republicans will handle the rest. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, shockingly plausible in light of, you know, what Trump told Zelensky back in 2019. Right. In any event, uh, I think you were right to focus in on that letter. We had not seen that document before. It had not previously 
been released in the Eastman litigation. Um, but we had seen other indications, which you and I talked about on this show, uh, and we have both talked about separately on our respective shows, uh, that Eastman prior to the failure of state legislatures to convene and certify alternative slates of electors was pushing the line of alternative slates of electors are key to the whole process. So I think you're absolutely right to, to season on that. I just wanted to, to kind of bring that one to a close. Um, then I want to say with respect, <laughs> with respect to Donahue Rosen and the, the effort to bring in environmental lawyer, Jeffrey Clark as, as uh, attorney general. I mean, it's just some we'll Donahue's testimony on this. Yeah. That, that is just a high comedy of, of, of uh, the, the highest uh, regard. But so, Here's what happened. Zoe Lofgren went on television, told the public that the hearing that included Donahue and Rosen had been postponed because the videographers, right? And, and the videographers had to work overtime to get Bill Stepien's video testimony up because Stepien didn't appear because his wife was giving birth. And so uh, he couldn't appear. And then the videographers were just too tired to put together the Donahue and Rosen hearing after that last minute cancellation. How did that strike you? <laughs> yeah, no, that doesn't sit right with me. Um, I'll tell you why. Obviously, it just seems ridiculous on its face, right? But you're the, the fucking Congress. You don't have a couple extra videographers. You can pull, like, hey, I'll help. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, recently, Merrick Garland and a U.S. attorney in D.C., Matt Graves, and all of us watched the trial of one Michael Sussman. You and I have covered it at length. You and I have said from the beginning that even if the case makes it to trial, that Durham, the prosecution, Durham special counsel appointed by Barworks for Department of Justice, had no chance of conviction. None. Yeah, and and uh, by the way, a defense verdict, right, in like 12 <laughs> minutes. So, uh, you know, that's a swish on that one from you and I. Um and the reason that we were able to call that from the very beginning was because of materiality, right? Durham had argued that Sussman lied to the FBI, namely Jim Baker, right? And that his alleged lie was material, but it wasn't, right? The lie didn't make a bit of difference in how the FBI did or did not conduct the probe, right? In fact, they, they, they agreed to prevent press stories from going out, right? Um, so... But there, but I, I think I see where you're going with this, right? That there was a, another reason be, beyond materiality why the Sussman prosecution failed so spectacularly. And I think I love where you're going. Yeah, yeah. If you remember, uh, Jim Baker was a single solitary witness to the alleged lie that Sussman told. But Jim Baker didn't just testify to Durham's grand jury. He also answered questions in a Department of Justice Office, Office of Inspector General investigation into the mm -hmm. meeting. Uh, and he testified to Congress uh, about that meeting. And as it turns out, all three of his interviews said different things. He said different things in all three of those. <laughs> he told Congress, I think, that he he didn't recall if Sussman was there on behalf of a client. He told the grand jury for Durham, oh yeah, he was, after being shown some notes, very specific notes, and not being shown some other notes. Um, that he told someone about like secondhand notes. He, he, so he told the, the grand jury something different than he told Congress and he told the OIG something different than he told the other two that he believes Sussman was there on behalf of a client. But yeah. Yeah. And that so <laughs> we have three different. Yeah. So that's, that's not good. 
No, that that is exactly right. And when you have that kind of and, and specifically to to have three conflicting versions of the story is is pretty spectacularly great in terms of you know were you lying now are you lying now were you lying then or were you lying in the middle right like it's um you know it's the dream it literally is when they teach you uh, how to conduct cross examination um that, that this is the classic lawyer question right of well were you lying then or are you lying now? So uh, that yeah, and is object, as and then bad you as it gets. Say, no, because this goes towards impeachment and they will overrule the guy's objection and you can continue to ask those questions. Yep. So put it all together for us. Oh, right. So why am I bringing up the Sussman case, right? Why, why the fuck are you talking about Sussman with regards to the January 6th Department of Justice and, and the, the committee hearings? Well, first, we know on January 25th of 2021, just under three weeks after the attack on the Capitol, the Department of Justice Office of Inspector General launched an investigation into Donald's former Justice Department officials. Uh, yeah, and this has not been talked about really anywhere, right? That read, for immediate release, the DOJ Office of the Inspector General is initiating an investigation into whether any current or former DOJ official engaged in an improper attempt to have DOJ seek to alter the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. The investigation will encompass all relevant allegations that may arise that are within the scope of the OIG's jurisdiction, right? That is internal investigation of the Department of Justice. The OIG has, jur has jurisdiction to investigate allegations concerning the conduct of former and current DOJ employees, and uh, their jurisdiction does not extend to allegations against other governmental officials. Right. So that was whew, a year and a half ago, almost. Yep. Stands to reason both Donahue and Rosen have been questioned by the DOJ Office of the Inspector General and uh, others who participated in the discussion about maybe the mass resignation that were maybe people that were at the January 4th meeting and, and the Jeffrey Clark letters would have already been interviewed. Uh, those folks with knowledge of those letters might already been interviewed by the Office of Inspector General. Jeffrey Clark might have been interviewed <laughs> by the Office of the Inspector General. Yeah. Because generally, you know, the DOJ, you don't really go generally interview targets usually, but the, the inspector general does all the time. And additionally, Donahue and Rosen have testified to the congressional committee about the same set of events. And it wouldn't be unheard of if they've testified before a federal grand jury. <sighs> That's in, such a good point. In the sprawling <laughs> one six probe, because Merrick Garland testified last year he would take whatever recommendations the Office of the Inspector General made to him with regards to their investigation into former DOJ officials and current, but I'm focused on the former. <laughs> As I think you should be. No, that that is it's that's really, really brilliant. It is nothing that anyone has said so far. Um, and, and when you put it all together, think about how that dovetails with our first story, right? So we were talking about that Wednesday, June 15th letter about interview transcripts. Um, in, in the part that you didn't read during the A block, right, it also emphasized the importance of testing witness credibility. It said, quote, it is critical that the department be able to evaluate the credibility of witnesses who have provided statements to multiple governmental entities in assessing the strength of any potential criminal prosecutions, end of quote. Yeah, so put all that together. Back into Sussman world, Jim Baker testifies before Congress, the grand jury, and the OIG. Presumably, Donahue and Clark and Rosen have testified before Congress, uh, the Department of Justice, OIG, and perhaps even a federal grand jury. Same three entities, right? 
Yeah. Inconsistent testimony tanked that Sussman prosecution in part. Materiality also did. It was just bullshit. But any inconsistent testimony in the Donahue-Rosen interviews could tank an investigation into Clark and perhaps even Donald. So it's my gut feeling. And again, this is speculation. But I don't think that hearing was postponed because the videographers were tired. (laughs) I think Department of Justice public testimony was delayed so that the DOJ maybe could review the testimony for consistency, maybe coordinate what they're going to say publicly. Uh, Because I don't think that DOJ officers are going to be there for the public hearings as they were for the ones behind closed doors where they could control sort of what was happening. And to ensure that no public testimony would be inconsistent with the interviews conducted by the OIG or the grand jury. Now, it could be something else completely different. It could be Proud Boys testimony. And we know some of it has to do with that. We saw, you know, we saw that in the first hearing with Bertino, Proud Boy, who I said raided the same day Taria was arrested, has not been charged, appears to be cooperating with the committee, probably cooperating with Department of Justice. DOJ may simply need to check consistency of their cooperating extremist leaders' testimony ahead of their upcoming trial. (laughs) Regardless, regardless, Andrew, I don't think the hearing was postponed because of tired videographers. (laughs) I I love uh, the the work that you've done here. And, And let me just add one point to it, right? Which is the January 6th committee can, at its discretion, release testimony to the Department of Justice. They're the ones in control of that. But it doesn't work that way in reverse, right? Grand jury testimony is confidential, is sealed. You have to go to the court and get and qualify under one of the exceptions under the federal rules and move to release that testimony. So the DOJ can't just turn over any grand jury transcripts that might exist of Donahue and Rosen, right? What they, but what they can do is you can bring somebody into the room. You can bring Graves into the room, right? And say, hey, um, this is what we're going to put up on the screen as Donahue having said. We have now, we've, we've double-checked this against the OIG transcripts that they've given to us. Um, is this consistent with what was said Uh, during the grand jury testimony. And so without revealing the contents of that testimony, right, uh, Graves could say, yes, this is consistent, or no, this is not consistent, right? And that does not require you to go to court and get a motion to make public that grand jury testimony. So I it I it I know there's a lot of beans going on here, but I love the work that you've done here. I think the analogy to Sussman is really strong. I think when you're talking about multiple statements, you know, one of the things you know as a lawyer is just I, it, people who are telling the truth can give slightly inconsistent statements, right? Like it just, it just happens. Memory is fallible, words are fungible, right? Like it's it's tough. And so uh, I, I find I find what you're saying very, very plausible. I certainly find it more plausible than the like, <laughs> it's my first day. And I, I'm sorry, the, the video team's super tired like that. That 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 felt weird when that came out. Yeah. So, and uh, you really I, I love it. you really have to sort of suss out these inconsistencies when when there's multiple investigations going on in different agencies before you bring charges, before you're in court. And the opposing counsel can can bring forth all of your inconsistent testimony to impeach you as a witness and tank the prosecution. Yeah. I now, trust me, there was a lot more wrong with the Sussman okay. <laughs> investigation yes, yes. than what the Department of Justice is looking at in either the Donahue 
uh, Rosen Clark case or the Proud Boys cases or the Oath Keepers cases. But you still, even if you are on the righteous side of prosecution and there are inconsistent testimonies, that defense lawyer can immediately jump in there and impeach the shit out of your prosecuting witnesses and 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 make it very difficult for you to get a conviction or they can use it to overturn on appeal. I mean, there's a lot of different things at play, but that is what I think has to be foremost on Department of Justice's mind. Like we're trying to even if it's not Trump, even if it's just the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers for seditious conspiracy, which is a big fucking deal, by the way, we got to make sure that we don't have any inconsistencies in these in these testimonies that can impeach our witnesses on the stand. I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I just want to add one last thing, which is let's imagine that Donahue has given inconsistent testimony on a particular point. Right. That doesn't sink him as a witness. It sinks him as a witness if you're not prepared for that, right? If you are prepared, right, then you introduce that. And then you also ask, right, on direct, and this is the way it would work in a prosecution, but, you know, you could you could easily uh, do something similar in a public presentation uh, by the committee. Then, then you would just ask him, now, isn't it also true, Mr. Donahue, that you said something, in, you know, inconsistent with that you previously said, you know, X, right? And then, you know, you have him say, yeah, I did. And I was talking about Y, Z and A, right? You, you just you front it. You come out. You say, hey, um, the other side is going to get up and try and impeach you and say that you said something contradictory. Tell us why that's not the case. Yeah, right? draw and the, the blood. Difference, Make, bring yeah. it out first. And, and, yeah. and, and, and the difference it. between that is is the difference between, you know, a witness who's credible versus a witness that that becomes impeached. So uh, I, I love it. This strikes me as exactly the kind of thing that a. Uh, 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 that smart lawyers putting together a case are likely to do so. I think you've, uh, I, I think you've done a, a massive service here, and uh, we'll just have to wait and see if you were correct. Yeah, and we might never know. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. <laughs> in which case, can always in, declare victory. Yeah, in and which then case, withdraw. I'm right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> That's how it works. Well, this is fascinating. I'm going to be back in that hearing room tomorrow, um, uh, yesterday, for those listening. So, um, <laughs> so jealous. Go back and you can look at the Twitter feed and see what I've what I've posted from there. And and again, and I'm, I could get bumped. Uh, you know, I might get bumped out, but uh, that's so far. I'm pretty sure I'm I'm in like Flynn. So, it's not Michael Flynn, but uh, you know what I'm talking about. So I'm excited. Uh, I'm do. excited for that. <laughs> and. Uh, I can't think of anything else I wanted to talk about today. I just wanted to get that whole Sussman thing off my chest because people people seem to be uh, frothing, as as Empty Wheel says, about, you know, why doesn't the DOJ do their own fucking interviews? And, you know, like, uh, look, it's not about that. It's um, it's it's a consistency issue. And Chuck Rosenberg brought it up, too. Right. He's the one he's the guy who planted planted the seed uh and i was like well this is just like the sussman trial so that's why i wanted to bring in that example so anyway that is it we're going to get together you and i andrew and figure out when we're going to have our next patron zoom meeting so if you want to become a patron for as little as a buck an episode and be able to get on that zoom hangout you can do that at patreon.com slash aisle four five pod uh aisle 45 pod and uh, that's all that's all i have today do you have anything else any final thoughts Nope, I think you did a masterful job, and uh, I, like the rest of our audience, will be uh, patiently waiting for tomorrow's hearing. Yesterday's hearing. <laughs> Tomorrow is yesterday. Isn't that a Star Trek? Okay. I, I will <laughs> it see is you, indeed. I will see you all there DC tomorrow Fontana, in the past. All right. Uh, this has been <laughs> uh, Clean Up on Aisle 45. I've been Allison Gill. 
And I'm Andrew Torres, and until next week. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. M-S-W-Media. <laughs>